Good morning. Today we're going to wrap up the events of the Samaritans. We've been in John chapter 4 for uh, quite a bit, and uh, we've been studying the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and today we're going to conclude that. Last time we left off with Jesus teaching his disciples about sowing and reaping. Some sow, some reap, but all work for the same Lord. And the time is coming when we will all celebrate the sower and the reaper. Remember, Jesus is using the imagery of a spiritual harvest. Some sow the word of God. They tell someone about Jesus Christ, and they never know if that person trusts Christ or not. But they sow the word. And someone else comes along a month, a year, five years, ten years, twenty years, fifty years later. And tells that same person about Jesus Christ. And that person believes. The second person is the reaper. The first person is the sower. And Jesus has taught his disciples that the reapers and the sowers will rejoice together. He's been teaching them to always be ready to reap. Jesus reaped the Samaritan woman. Because in the conversation that they're having at the well next to the Samaritan city of Sychar... The woman came as an unbeliever, and she left as a believer. So Jesus reaps this woman unto eternal life. She goes back to her village in Sychar. She tells the men of Sychar about Jesus. She sows. The men of Sychar come to Jesus, and then they believe, because Jesus will then reap from her sowing. Just by way of reminder, that's what I was kind of spending just a few minutes on, is just kind of refreshing your memory in these events. Then we get to verse 39 of chapter 49, which reads like this. From that city, that's the city where the Samaritan woman's from, Sychar. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. Remember? She's having this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus says, refers to her husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you said that rightly. You've had five husbands. And the man that you're living with today is not your husband. And she then goes, the Samaritan woman, after the conversation goes on, and then Jesus ultimately says, I am the Christ. She believes. She goes back home to her town immediately. She forgets the water pot because she went to the well. They're having a conversation at the well. She receives this living water from Jesus. She's so excited that she forgets the reason that she came to the well in the first place. She forgets her water pot there. She rushes to tell the men of Sychar where she lives about Jesus. And she tells them that Jesus knows everything about me. What she's referring to is the omniscience of Jesus. She's referring to the private things in her life. She's referring to the things that she'd prefer to keep, to be kept secret. That she's been married five other times and that she's in fornication, living in fornication today with the sixth man. Jesus knows it all. And so she says to the men of Sychar, this isn't the Christ, is it? She's giving them the word of God, but she's doing it. She's giving them the gospel but she's doing it kind of in an oblique way. She's not coming right at them because she knows she's got a credibility issue. She's got a credibility issue on the things of God, on the, the, the 
concept of the morality of God. So she's going to tell them the most important thing about God, how to get to God, access to God. And so she tells it to them in kind of a side door way. This is what we're reading about in verse 39 here. This is what they respond to. They respond, and they respond positively. They believed because she told them about the person of Jesus, how he knows all these things about me, even though we just met. She was referring to his omniscience. Keep reading in verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. This is a huge deal. You read it, and the words just kind of run off the tongue, and you just read it really fast. Don't read it fast. Think about this for a minute. This is a big, 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 huge, to quote a prior president, it's a huge deal. It's huge. Remember we studied the conflict between Samaritans and Jews? There's all this historical, for centuries, conflict, roughly seven centuries, 700 years of conflict in terms of racial conflict, religious conflict, this tension between these two groups. And so the notion that the Samaritans would invite a rabbi, that's what Jesus is, rabbi means teacher, the notion that they would invite a rabbi to stay with them, to teach them, to live among them for two days, to eat with them, to fellowship with them, is something that is a huge deal. And the idea that a rabbi would do any of those things is a big deal. But the Samaritans are ready, willing, and able to ignore every aspect of the cultural norm. They're interested and excited about rejecting the tradition. The tradition of these two groups don't interface together at all. And the reason why they're willing to reject the tradition and ignore the cultural norms is because they understand the eternal significance of the person of Jesus. And the reason Jesus, of course, is willing to jettison the norms, the traditions, is because Jesus, as we have seen, is on a divine errand to save Samaritan souls. And he's the one who initiated the conversation in the first place with the Samaritan woman. Read verse 41. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. That's verse 42. Verse 41. Many more believed because of his word. Many more believed. It's an explosion. It's an explosion of fruit here among the Samaritans. It's exponential harvesting that is going on. First the woman, then the men that she told in Sychar, and now many more believe, and they believe because of Jesus' word. The power is not in your words. Don't flatter yourself. The power is not in your words. You, of course, have an obligation to tell people about Jesus Christ and not to hoard that truth for yourself. But the power is not in your words. It's the words of Jesus. Many more believed because of Jesus' word. They heard Jesus' word directly, orally from Jesus. You are informed of Jesus' word because it is written, it is recorded for you in the text. And the only reason why anyone comes to Christ is because of Jesus' words. Now, he gives you the privilege. He doesn't need you. 
He doesn't need you. Don't flatter yourself. He doesn't need you. He could bring a donkey to present a more effective message than me or than you. I mean, he had a donkey, Balaam's donkey speak, right? In the Hebrew Scriptures. He could bring a donkey to present a better gospel message than you and me. The key to the gospel message is not our words. It's Jesus' words. That's where the power is. And the only reason we even know Jesus' words is because the apostles of Jesus Christ have recorded it for us in the Scriptures. In verse 42, where they come and they say to her that they no longer believe because of what she said, but instead they have seen for themselves and they know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. They're not criticizing her when they say, we no longer believe because of what you said. They're not saying, you said whatever, and now we've learned more information, and what you said is irrelevant. They're not criticizing her words at all. They're validating them. They're saying, we now see the words of Jesus, and that confirms what you said. Human testimony about Jesus is important. But Jesus' testimony about himself is supreme. It's preeminent. And notice the title that they use. We now know that he is the Savior of the world. They don't say the Savior of the Samaritans. They don't say the Savior of the Jews. They say the Savior of the world. This is the only time the title Savior of the world is used in the Gospels. And who uses it to describe Jesus? Not the people of Israel, but the Gentiles. That's effectively what the Samaritans are. I mean, the Jews viewed them as half-breeds because they were originally Jewish and then other nations came into that region after the Assyrian conquest. And so they had some Jewish blood in them, but they're primarily Gentiles. These Gentiles are the only ones who use the phrase Savior of the world. What the Apostle John is, is focusing on here and why he emphasizes this title, Savior of the World, is he's focusing on the deity of Christ. Do you understand that the title, Savior of the World, refers to the deity of Christ? Christ is fully God, fully man. When I say it refers to the deity of Christ, what I mean by that is salvation is of God alone. It is God alone who saves. This is right out of the Hebrew Scriptures. Psalm 62, verse 1, David says, My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. Isaiah the prophet said, Yahweh has bared His holy arm, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Not just the Jews, not just the Samaritans, not just the Scandinavians or the Africans or the Asians. Every and every nation and the ends of the earth Every nation is, is part of that quote, but I don't have it all there just for the sake of being able to have it all on the screen. A time is coming when God will display that he saves the world. Revelation 7, verse 9. I looked, this is the same Apostle John who gives us the Gospel of John. He said, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, white clothing is a sign of victory. Verse 10, And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're not saying God needs salvation. 
or that the Lamb needs salvation. They're praising God for the salvation that God provides through the Lamb. Now, I need to be clear about something on this title, Savior of the World. It doesn't mean that everyone's saved. It's not true that everyone's saved. It means that everyone is saved a bull. Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Samaritans. Everyone's savable, but not all are saved. The only ones who are saved are those who accept the free gift of eternal life, the free gift of the offer of salvation. That concludes the events with the Samaritans. Now Jesus is going to get back on the journey that he was on initially. Remember, he started the journey in Judea. In, Samaria, in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Then he was on a journey to Galilee, but he takes a detour in Samaria. He goes through Samaria, and then he stops there for this conversation with the Samaritan woman, and then ultimately with the Samaritans, and he actually has a revival there that we've studied in Samaria. Look at verse 43. After the two days he went forth from there, from Samaria from the well where he was having this conversation and where he stayed there in that area for two nights. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. That's what you see there on the screen. Verse 44. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. When you read these two verses, there seems to be a disconnect, right? A disconnect between these two verses. Because the first verse, verse 44, Jesus, who was from Galilee, says, a prophet has no honor in his own country. That's probably a saying or a proverb of the day. Verse 44, Jesus says, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Jesus is in Galilee. He's from Galilee. But then in the next verse, it says the Galileans received him, having seen what he had done in Jerusalem. One verse says, Jesus says, a prophet has no honor in his own country. He's referring to Galilee. Next verse, the Galileans received him because they'd seen the miracles that he did in Jerusalem. Seems like a disconnect, but there's no disconnect at all. Because what the Apostle John is doing is taking the events of Jesus' ministry and he's weaving them together very, very tightly, very, very nicely. What he's doing is he's describing the same group that we saw at the end of chapter 2 in the book of John. Please turn in your Bibles back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 23 of the book of John. There we read this. Now when he, the he there is Jesus. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. You see the feast there? John refers to the feast in John chapter 2, verse 23. That's the same feast he's talking about in John chapter 4, verse 45, it's the Passover feast. The Galileans, just step back for a second. In John chapter 4, 
verses 45 and 46, John is talking about the Galileans, how the Galileans saw Jesus at the feast in Jerusalem and saw his works. He's taking us back to John chapter 2, verse 25, where the Galileans went from Galilee, which is in the north, down to Jerusalem, to the temple, for the Passover feast. That's what they were required to do. The Jews were required to go to Jerusalem for three feasts a year. Jewish men. One of those was the Passover feast. So John, in John 4, is taking us back to John 2, where both of them refer to the feast in Jerusalem. And John is telling us that the people there in John chapter 2 included, the group that were there in John chapter 2, included those Galileans from John chapter 4, and they saw Jesus performing signs. This is just a few days before, right? Jesus is in Jerusalem, John chapter 2, at the Passover feast, performing signs. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him by night, Nicodemus a Pharisee. John chapter 4, Jesus goes, is leaving Judea, going north, he goes into Samaria. He spends the night in Samaria two days, two nights. So, even though it's separated by a number of verses, by chapters, it's really only separated in terms of time by a matter of days. Maybe it's three, four, five, six days from John 4 to John 2. John 4, the Galileans that we're just getting introduced to back in having been at the feast in Jerusalem. Keep reading in John chapter 2, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Remember when we studied that in John chapter 2, we saw that the people who were there in Jerusalem at the end of John chapter 2, they're believing in Jesus, not in his authority, not in his person. They're believing in his miracles. They see the miracles, they believe the miracles, they believe that he does the miracles, they believe that he has authority to do the miracles, but they don't believe that he's the Lagos, that he's the word of God, to quote the, the prologue. They don't believe that he's their access to heaven. And I say that they're unbelievers because of John chapter 3, verse 1, because of the Pharisee Nicodemus, who's an unbeliever. The Galileans of chapter 4, verse 44, verse 45, are part of this group. They're interested in the miracles. The miracles are fascinating. They're interested in the supernatural, but, then, but not the sacred. They're not interested in the person of Jesus in the Word of God. What I want you to see is that we're talking about the same group of people. At least the Galileans are part of that group in John chapter 2 who see Jesus' miracles. They're interested in the miracles. They believe that He is a miracle worker. But they don't believe in Him. See, believing that Jesus can do miracles is not enough. The Pharisees believe that. Everybody believed that Jesus could do miracles. They saw them. I mean, they didn't have a, a, a cell phone to record them and post them on social media, but they saw them with their own eyes because there were so many of them. The question wasn't whether you believed that Jesus could do miracles. The question was, what is the authority that you believe Jesus is doing the miracles in? 
right? The Pharisees knew that he did miracles, and he said, and they said he does them in the power of Beelzebub, another name for Satan. Talk about rejection. You don't get any more rejection than that. You say that the Messiah is, in fact, doing miracles in the authority of the devil himself. The question wasn't, do you believe that Jesus does miracles? The question was, what is the authority in which Jesus does these miracles? For the men of Galilee, who were part of the group in John chapter two, at the end of John chapter 2, they believed that Jesus did miracles, but they did not believe that he had the authority of God himself. They didn't believe that he was the access to God. Here's what's happening. The Apostle John is making a contrast. He's making a contrast. We've seen this long series of events in John chapter 4 about Samaria, right? You have this revival in Samaria. And you know how many miracles Jesus does? Zero. Zero in Samaria. No signs. No wonders. And they believe wholesale. It's true. He spoke words of omniscience. But all he does is speak in Samaria. And the fruit is exponential. The number of people who believe in him, who trust in him as the Messiah, is huge in Samaria. No signs, and they believe. But what John is saying is the people of Israel where Jesus does sign upon sign upon sign. There's belief. It's just the belief is reluctant. The belief is few and far between. That's what's happening here. Keep reading verse 46 of John chapter 4. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Remember in John chapter 2, that was the first of his public miracles, where he turned the water at the wedding into wine a sign of the celebration of the kingdom, a sign that he can bring in the kingdom. Some people think that God is a killjoy, that God, that, would, that if you're a Christian, you have to have this uh, sour look on your face. The more sour you look, the more spiritual you are. Nothing could be further from the truth. God loves to celebrate. You find Jesus all the time at parties. Now, of course, God has, has boundaries for joy. God has boundaries for pleasure. By the way, he invented pleasure, not the culture. He has boundaries for pleasure, but God is a God of celebration. And that's what that, with the very first miracle, it's not an accident that the first public miracle that Jesus did back in John chapter 2 was at a wedding, at a party, a celebration. And he makes wine into water. It's real wine, by the way. It's not Welch's grape juice. It's fermented wine. And the head waiter says, whoa. Most people bring in the nice wine at the end. What he's saying is that, you know, when people are, when their senses are a little dulled, maybe is the delicate way to say it. Right? When they're kind of three sheets to the wind. I meant to say, that's when you bring in the crummy wine. Most people bring in the crummy wine at the end. When people's taste buds, because they've had plenty of wine and, and they're not quite as, as, um, as focused as otherwise. That's when you bring in the crummy wine because you don't want them to know that you're bringing crummy wine. But the head waiter says in John chapter 2, whoa, you, this is the nice wine at the end of the, the event. You don't save the, the best for last. That's what God does. This is what John is referring to in John chapter 4, verse 46. He's, 
saying it's the same Cana where Jesus did the first of his public miracles. Keep reading in 46. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. We know very little about this official. Some think that the Roman official here is the Roman centurion from Matthew chapter 8 who asked Jesus to heal his sick servant. I don't believe that's accurate. I don't believe that this is the Roman centurion from Matthew chapter 8. Now, it's true that, that the centurion asked Jesus to heal someone he loves, just like this royal official asked Jesus to heal someone he loves. But I think these are different people for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the title itself, royal official. Some translations will say nobleman. It's the Greek word basilicus. Basilicus in Greek is associated with the Greek word basileus. Basileus means king. Basilicus means royal official, or better said, king's official. Some people, or some translations, translate this as nobleman. I think the better translation is royal official or king's official. Who's the king? This is an official of a king. Who's the king? It's King Herod Antipas, Antipas, who's the king of Galilee. He's referred to with the term King Basileus in Mark chapter 6, verse 14. You remember King Herod Antipas? He's the one who decapitated John the Baptist. Now, kings in the Roman Empire were very different than the way you and I might think of a king, right? They were very different than the king of Assyria or the king of Babylon or the king of Egypt because back in ancient times, a king typically had absolute authority. He ruled with an iron fist over his kingdom, absolute authority over kingdom. That is not how kings ruled in the Roman Empire. Because if you were a king in the Roman Empire, that meant you were under the Roman Empire. Everybody knew that you were a king in the, if you were a king in the Roman Empire, like King Herod Antipas, that in the end, you answered to Rome. You were under the authority of Rome. What the Romans did is they would allow some lower leader, some ruler, like in this case the ruler of Galilee, Herod Antipas, if he wanted to have the term, the title king, they would allow him to have it as long as he understood that they exercised authority over him. Because the Romans themselves despised the word king. They hated the word king. I mean, in Latin, the word rex, king, they would cringe at that word, especially in the, in the Republic of Rome. Right? During the Republic of Rome, they hated this concept of power being concentrated in one person. So the power was in the Senate. When the legions would, would march forth to, to conquer some region, they would fly a flag that said S-P-Q-R on it, Senatus Populusque Romanus, the Senate and the people of Rome. They made a nod to the people as if the power was in the people. The power wasn't in the people. The power was in the Senate, in the Republic, because they... The, the Romans hated this concept of having power concentrated in one man, a rex, a king. It wasn't until Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon with, with his 13th Roman legion and marches on Rome that the course of events for Rome change in a very big way. 
because Caesar puts in motion a course of events that changes the republic into an empire, but not even the Roman emperors who did have concentration of power in them. The, the, by, by the time of the empire, the Senate was just a... Um, a it existed, and the emperor would give kind of lip service to the Senate, but all the power was, in fact, concentrated in one man, the emperor. But not even the emperors would use the word king. They wouldn't go by, by the Latin word rex or by the Greek word basileus. They would use the title Caesar, right? That's why it's Caesar Augustus, Caesar Nero, Caesar Hadrian. Or they would use the Latin word imperator, which is really a title given to generals. It was a military title, initially anyway. Why does this matter? Why do we care about Roman history? Because I want you to understand that this royal official, this king's official, cannot be the centurion. That'll be important in a few minutes. It cannot be a Roman military officer because a first century centurion would never, ever want to be associated with the term basileus. Would never want to be associated with the term king. First, because the Romans cringed at that word king. But second, he would never want Caesar, who is his ultimate authority, the Roman centurions, the military officers, ultimate authority is Caesar. He would never want Caesar to think that he was being disloyal by being a basilicus, by being a king's official, because the Roman military answered to Caesar and to Caesar alone. We'll see why all of this is important, why the distinction between the centurion of Matthew 8 and the king's official of John 4, why it's important. We'll see that in a few minutes. Let's keep reading in, in John chapter 4, verse 47. It reads like this. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So here you see on the screen Capernaum and Cana. They're about 20 miles in distance. Capernaum is on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. What the king's official does here, the basilicus, is he goes. He leaves Capernaum, which is where his base is. He's an official for the king of Galilee, Herod Antipas. He leaves Capernaum, makes his way to Cana because he understands that Jesus is there. He knows that Jesus does miracles. And his son is on death's door. He's desperate for a miracle. So he travels to Cana and he asks Jesus to come down. That's the phrase it uses, right? That's the phrase we just read in the verse. He comes down, even though as you see there on the map, Capernaum is higher than, or further north than Cana. The reason they use the phrase as we studied before, come down, is because the elevation is significantly different. The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. And so the elevation is significantly lower. That's what this come down means. Look at Jesus' response in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Ouch. Ouch. That's the proper response. I mean, this is a pretty sharp-edged response that Jesus makes to this man's request 
to come and heal his son. This is a man of power. This is an official of the king. This is a man of authority. And Jesus' response is somewhat harsh and pretty sharp. This is a man of authority who is pleading with Jesus to come to Capernaum, to travel to Capernaum, and heal his son. Not only does Jesus not suck up to the man, but he gives a direct and even harsh response. Why? It's simple. Jesus loves him. That's the answer. Jesus loves him. And this man does not believe in the person, in the authority of Jesus. Sure, he believes that Jesus can do miracles. He believes that Jesus can heal his son. He does believe that. But he doesn't believe in the authority of Jesus, the authority in which Jesus does the miracles. Notice this phrase here in verse 48. You simply will not believe. Really, all the, all the yous in this verse are plural. They're all y'alls if the conversation was being had in Texas. They're all you alls, right? That at the beginning of the verse, Jesus says, so Jesus said to him, unless you all, people is in italics in your Bible. That means people is not literally in the Greek. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you all simply is in italics. It's not in the Greek, literally in the Greek. It's, as you know, words are, when you find an italic word in your Bible, it's not that it's a bad word uh, or an improper word to be there. It's just the translators are adding it, and they want you to know that they've added it. That's why they put it in italics to kind of smooth out the reading. What you miss is the plural of you sometimes. The way it literally reads in the Greek is, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. Or to be more literal in the Greek, the phrase, you all simply will not believe, is ume pistu sete. In the Greek, it's two negatives plus the aorist subjunctive. And the way that works is, it's an emphatic negative. See, in our English, you put two negatives and, 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 and your grammar teacher says, eh, no, you don't, you're not supposed to have double negatives in English. In Greek, they love double negatives because a double negative, in Hebrew too, you're going to have a double negative and it emphasizes the negativity of the statement, the negative nature of the statement. What Jesus is saying is, no way, no how, absolutely, positively not, you will not believe. Literally, in the Greek, it is not, not, will you all believe. No way, no how will you believe unless you see signs and wonders. Unlike the Samaritans, who got no signs, who got no wonders, but they believe exponentially in terms of exponential harvest that Jesus made. By the way, what we're seeing here is that this official, the king's official, the royal official, is Jewish. Because Jesus is making this comment with respect to a Jewish audience who's not believing, who's slow to believe. The Jewish official is part of this group that Jesus is referring to. There are two ways in which the king's official here fails to believe in Jesus. Way number one is he thinks Jesus must be present. He's got to be present to heal. Come on, let's go. Come on, let's go, Jesus. We've got to get to Capernaum. You've got to get 
to where my son is, where my boy is, to be able to heal him. Come to Capernaum. The second way that the official is not believing is that he thinks Jesus' authority is limited to this realm, to the realm of the material world, which you can see and touch and feel. Because if we don't get there in time, Jesus, my boy's gone. We need to get there quickly. Because if my boy dies, you can't help. Because your authority is limited, Jesus. You don't have authority over death, in other words. There are two problems. This man thinks that Jesus' power is limited by space. That's why he wants him to hurry up and get to Capernaum, 20 miles away. And this man thinks that Jesus' authority is limited because he doesn't have authority over death. This man thinks in a way that is very, very, very different than the Roman centurion. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. I want you to see the Roman centurion's faith versus this king's official in John chapter 4. Matthew chapter 8 has this description of the Roman military officer and his interaction with Jesus. He's going to also request that Jesus heal someone that he loves. But when, when we walk through Matthew chapter 8, I want you to pick up on the contrast, the contrast between the Gentile Roman military officer and the Jewish official. They make their request in very different ways. Matthew chapter 8 verse 5 reads like this. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, that's the same Capernaum, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, notice the word he uses. First word. The first word that the centurion addresses to Jesus is Lord. Kurias in the Greek. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Kurias, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. First difference between the centurion and the, the Jewish king's official. First difference is the centurion is a man who recognizes his complete, complete lack of worth in comparison to Jesus. He recognizes his inferiority to Jesus. I'm not worthy for you to even enter my home, Jesus. I mean, this is a centurion who speaks on behalf of Caesar, who has the authority of legions, at least one legion. And he says, Jesus, a Jew, a Jew, the Romans would have thought of. Please don't misunderstand when I use that tone. I'm not being disrespectful at all to the Jews. They are the chosen people of God. And the Christian who engages in anti-Semitism is not only a fool, because every method of your salvation is related to Jews. Jesus, a Jew. All the apostles, Jews. The only reason you don't know anything about Jesus is because of the Jews. So I'm not being disrespectful at all. The, the Christian who engages in anti-Semitism is not only a fool, but he's engaging in total total sinfulness because they are the chosen people of God. 
This is the way the Romans would think, though. The traditional classic Roman would think, Jews? That's the way a centurion, a man of power, would think. But this centurion, a Gentile, says to the Jew of Jews, Jesus, I'm not even worthy for you to to darken the door of my house. First difference. The centurion thinks that he is, recognizes his inferiority to Jesus. Read verse 8. Verse 8 continues, but just, this is the centurion speaking, but just say the word, just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. That's the second difference. The second difference between the centurion and the king's official, the Jewish difference between the Gentile Roman centurion and the Jewish king's official is the centurion recognizes the person of Jesus. He recognizes his authority. You understand what the centurion is saying here? He's saying, look, I'm a man of the military. I recognize the chain of command. I understand authority, an authority structure. I answer to my superiors. My superiors give me an order, and I execute it. I act on their behalf, and I have subordinates. I give those who are underneath me an order, and they execute it. They act on my behalf, and I recognize that you, Jesus, have the authority of God. You receive instruction from God. Remember, Jesus is not just fully God. He's fully man. You receive instruction from God, and you act on behalf of God. You see, the centurion trusts that Jesus wields and exercises the power of God. I know that you have power over life and death as God, is what the centurion is saying. I know that your power is not limited by time and space. Just say it. Just speak it, Jesus. And I know it will happen. You don't need to come to my house. My house is way over there. Just say it. And he'll be healed, the centurion says. Keep reading, verse 10. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Excuse me? He marveled? I thought Jesus was God, omniscient. Well, he's also a man. And sometimes Jesus will speak with respect to his humanity. How exactly that works, that's above my pay grade. Fully God, fully man. How the omniscient is united with the, the finite knowledge, I don't understand. How the omnipotent, all-powerful God is united with a man who can be brutalized by the Romans, crucified. I don't understand how that works. How the one who is omnipresent everywhere, on Jupiter, on Mars, in Galilee, in Rome, in North America, and yet he is limited in time and space as a human being in Galilee, how that works, I don't know. But like the old theologian Terstigan said, a God who is comprehended is no God at all. Jesus marveled. Keep reading. He marveled, verse 10, and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone, anyone in Israel. Verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west, that's the Gentiles, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's the eternal kingdom of God. Guess what? It's a Jewish kingdom. One more reason that is colossally stupid for a Christian to ever be anti-Semitic. It's a Jewish kingdom that we are added to. 
That's why Jesus refers here to the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's their table that we are invited to. Keep reading verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a reference to the lake of fire. It's real. The hell is real. It's real. And Jesus is saying many Israelites will go to the lake of fire. They will, believe, they will not believe. Verse 13, And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. I say again, the centurion is very different than the king's official. The centurion of Matthew 8 is very different than the royal official of John chapter 4. Please turn back to John chapter 4 in your Bibles. Let me read verse 48 again, and I'll read it along with verse 49. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. The Roman official doesn't want to have a conversation about belief and signs and wonders. He just wants his boy healed. He doesn't respond to Jesus' statement about belief and signs and wonders. He just says, come on. Come to Capernaum. Let's go. It's a 20-mile walk. Maybe, maybe he's, got a, he's got a donkey or he's got a horse or something that, that Jesus can ride on. Let's go is what he's saying because he continues to think that Jesus must be present in Capernaum standing over his boy in order to heal his son. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. Jesus doesn't grant his request. Jesus doesn't grant his request that Jesus will go to Capernaum 20 miles away. Jesus grants his ultimate request, which is that his son will be healed. Notice that it's in the present tense. It says, Your son lives. And then it says that the man believed. I think this means that the official believed that Jesus would heal the boy. Granted, the language of Jesus says, your son lives, present tense. But based on a conversation that the official is about to have with his servants, the official's brain is processing this. He's believing that Jesus will, future tense, somehow, some way, Heal his son. Keep reading, verse 51. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yes, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The seventh hour in Roman time is 7 p.m. But they said yesterday. Right? 7 p.m. yesterday, the servants say is when the fever left the boy. Here's what's happened. Jesus and the official had the conversation 7 p.m. Jesus says, your son lives. The official concludes that Jesus is going to heal the son somehow, some way. But it's nighttime. Back then, you don't travel at night. That's, that's a dangerous time to travel. So the official stays in Cana that night. The next day, he's 
ready to go. He wants to go home. He's assuming that his son is healed. He's on his way home. The, the servants that he has meet him on the road. Keep reading. Verse 53, so the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. Two different beliefs, right? Verse 53, it says he believed. And then in verse 50, it says he believed. Verse 50 is he believed Jesus was going to heal his son. Verse 53, he actually believes in Jesus. It's not until verse 53 that the Roman, excuse me, not Roman, that the official, the royal official, believes in Jesus finally. That the Jewish official of King Herod finally believes in Jesus. And the reason he believes is because he understands in verse 53 that Jesus healed his son remotely. He understands that Jesus healed his son 7 p.m. the day before. Right? When they're having the conversation 7 p.m. the day before, they're having the conversation and Jesus says, your son lives. It's the next day that the official is walking and he, he's walking back to Capernaum and he meets with his servants and the servant says, oh yeah, he, the boy was healed 7 p.m. yesterday. Ding, 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 ding. That's when the royal official says, oh, I get it. When we were talking, Jesus just said it and it happened. Jesus just made it happen. Jesus is not limited by time and space. Jesus is not limited by, by death. Jesus' power is limitless. He must have the power of God. That's what's happening here with this Jewish official. Then he tells his household, that's why it says, his whole household believed. He must have told his family and the servants, and they were amazed, and they believed in Jesus as well. Read verse 54, the final verse of chapter 4. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. This is the second sign, in other words, that Jesus performed in Galilee. The first sign was John chapter 2 where he turned the water into wine at the wedding. This is the second sign. It's not saying, the Apostle John is not saying these are the only two signs that Jesus has done, that these are the only two miracles that Jesus has done. We know from the end of chapter 2 that Jesus did all kinds of miracles in Jerusalem. That's why the Galileans who were there said, oh, hey, we believe in your miracles, but they didn't believe in him. Jesus has done miracle upon miracle upon miracle. What the Apostle John is, is, is simply making a point of, these are the two public miracles that Jesus has done in Galilee. And of course, of course, the reason, the purpose for these miracles, for the signs that Jesus did, was not so that people would believe the miracles. Jesus didn't do signs so that people would say, oh, he did a sign. He did the signs. He did the, the wonders, the miracles, so that people would believe in him. After all, that's the purpose statement of the book. Right? We've studied the purpose statement of the book of John. John chapter 30. Excuse me, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The purpose for the signs was so that the people would believe in Jesus. 
And the question for you here today is, do you believe in Jesus? There is no more important question for you. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust in Him? Now, the culture today dismisses this concept of miracles. The Scripture is clear that Jesus is fully God, fully man. And the question for you today is, do you trust in Him? If you do not trust in Him, then you're the enemy of God. I can't say it any more directly. You're the enemy of God if you have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. Maybe you're here today and you haven't yet. The reason Jesus gave sharp words to this official of the king is because he loved them. He loved this man and he loved everybody else who he gave the gospel to, even though they were his enemies. You are the enemy of God if you have not accepted Christ. Period. That's how we all are before we come to Christ. Because God cannot ignore your sin. It's not that He won't, it's that He can't. Because He is holy and righteous. He wouldn't be righteous if He said, you know what? You're a pretty good guy. You're a pretty good gal. I'm just going to blow it off. Then He wouldn't be God, but in His holiness, in His righteousness, there is a reckoning that His holiness demands. And that is the place that Jesus described there with respect to the centurion, the place where many people will go, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You say, I don't believe that God would send people to hell. That's your option. For now. For now, that's your option. You will one day. There is a reckoning coming. God is not just a God of judgment. He is a God of love and mercy and grace. And in His great grace, He made it so easy for you to not go to hell. In His great love, He made it so easy for you to dine at the table, as the centurion will do, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Very difficult for Christ. Christ gave it all. He gave His life so that you might be saved. Or to use the phrase from the book of Hebrew, to bring many sons to glory. All you have to do is trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. And in that instant, you stop being the enemy of God and you become his daughter. You become his son, the child of God, securely in his grip forever and ever. The decision is yours. Don't wait. Don't wait. Today's the day of salvation.